The reading is taken from Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 57, and that's on page 1026. So it's Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 57, on 1026. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbours were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, uh, Miranda and Andrew, and good morning, everyone. So we have come to the last Sunday in Advent. Our waiting time, our preparation time is almost over, and Christmas is almost here. And the question I ask us this morning is the question I've been asking myself for a couple of weeks. How, how was your Advent? How was your Advent? Has it been the time of preparation that you wanted it to be? Over these past few weeks, has expectation grown in you? Or has life been busy? Has life been difficult? So much so that Advent hasn't really registered as a thing. How was your Advent? 
This year, I spent the first half of Advent in Hong Kong, and because of that, I missed the early December carol services that are held here at St. Michael's. And for the first time in many years, I didn't experience the familiar combination of readings and music set in candlelight that, for me, have become an annual cue, an annual flick of the switch to get into a reflective and anticipatory mode. There were moments in Hong Kong, walking the streets um, with the temperatures in the mid-20s, or navigating another Santa's Grotto in yet another air-conditioned shopping mall, that I found myself quite bereft, missing the carols and the lessons and the candlelight, or the Advent traditions that I've become used to. On reflection, of course, there was, ha- there was hardly a more poignant place on earth to begin Advent 2019 than Hong Kong. For me, it was personal because I was born and raised brief- briefly a Hong Konger. And if you step outside the shopping malls with the grinning Santas, all around the city you see the physical signs of six months of unrest. Walls, pavements, pedestrian crossings covered with protest slogans. Ugly blotches where the public cleaners have been instructed to scrub them off, only for the graffiti to re-emerge overnight. Among my group of friends, the emotional fallout of living with unrest. It was all they could talk about and all they wanted to talk about. Friends I'd known since we were all carefree 20-somethings, now making contingency plans to exit the city to secure their children's future in case things get even worse. And in all of these conversations, the question, how will this all end, is met, yes, with some speculation and with some analysis, but more often than not with a shrug of the shoulders. How will this all end? Who knows? No one wants to dwell on the question for too long because that only adds to the collective sense of impotence. If ever there was a people that has come to realize the gross inadequacy of human interventions, if ever there was a city in need of a light in the darkness... What a place, what a time in which to reflect on what it means to wait for God to show up in the world. If I am a person who says I'm convinced of the truth of Jesus' first coming and that he is coming again, how do I wait? How do I wait well for his return when I'm confronted with a world that desperately needs God to act? And when I'm confronted with the contradictions of my own heart, a heart that on the one hand believes and on the other hand wonders how this Christmas could possibly be different from all the others. How do we wait? How do we wait well for God to act in our world and in ourselves? In our reading this morning, the child, John, who would be known in history as John the Baptist, was born among a people who were waiting for their God to act. For centuries, the people of Israel had lived with the shame, the daily oppression of being ruled against their will by a succession of powers they didn't want to be ruled by. 
But what was special about this people was that they believed that they were the people of God. And so for generations they had sustained a message of hope, an expectation that one day God would rescue them from foreign rule and restore to them a godly Messiah king from among themselves, a son of David. They believed these things would happen because God had promised that they would. That was the people that John was born into. On a personal level, the child John was born to parents who had played their part well, faithfully, in this collective state of waiting. Zechariah and Elizabeth were people who, we're told, live righteously despite the ongoing political constraints, despite disappointment in their personal circumstances. Up to this point, they had been childless, and we're told they had regarded it as a disgrace. If you turn back to verse 6 of the chapter, it tells us both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Zechariah was a priest, and at the beginning of the story, he was taking his turn serving in the temple. As we reflect on our own waiting for God, it would be tempting to conclude that we are supposed to see Zechariah and Elizabeth as role models of how to wait for God patiently, faithfully, dutifully. It would be tempting to think that if only we had more spiritual discipline like them, our Advent season would have had greater quality and depth. Yes, Zechariah and Elizabeth had waited on God blamelessly their whole lives, and God honoured them for it. God recognised that this was so. But that's not what made the difference in this story. For all his righteousness, Zechariah found it hard to believe the angel's news that his wife would bear a child. And it wasn't a sense of duty that gave Elizabeth the courage to contradict her relatives when they came to name the child after his father. And it wasn't Zechariah's upright character that eventually gave him back his voice so he could praise God and sing prophetically over his son. So if it wasn't good character or spiritual caliber, what was it that made the difference in this story? The constant, the one constant throughout this first chapter of Luke is the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis chapter 1, we read the thrilling words that at the dawn of creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Here in this first chapter of Luke, at the dawn of the first coming of the Son of God, we see the Spirit hovering again. Verse 35, Gabriel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, enabling her to bear a son. Verse 41, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit as her baby leapt in her womb at Mary's arrival. And verse 67, Zechariah, the moment he confirmed that his son was to be named John, was filled with the Holy Spirit. His mouth was opened after nine months of silence, and he praised God and prophesied. God's Holy Spirit, who was present at the beginning of creation, was present here 
to bring into being the new age of the Messiah. So it's not good character or spiritual caliber that makes the difference. It's the presence of the Spirit. And in the Song of Zechariah, we begin to see the substance of the difference that the Spirit makes. The Spirit changes our natural discernment, our natural attitudes, and the Spirit gives us courage beyond what we ourselves can muster. In the song, we see that the Spirit has opened Zechariah's eyes so he could see and discern that the birth of this precious boy was, yes, an answer to his own personal prayers, but had a meaning beyond that, that God was at work keeping his covenant promises, that God was responding to his people's longing. Verse 67, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. Verse 69, God's salvation is coming as promised in the house of David. Verse 72, God is keeping his covenant with the nation of Israel. Verse 74, God is rescuing us from the hand of our enemies and enabling us to serve him without fear. On the surface, nothing had changed. The enemy, the rule of Rome, remained in place. But Zechariah's song was prophetic because it declared the reality of unseen things. It was the spirit that enabled him to see that these things were happening, that God was at work, even though the external situation remained unchanged. It's not good character or spiritual caliber, but the spirit that enables, not just for us to discern God at work, but to embrace and to welcome the change that he's bringing about. From verse 76 onward, Zechariah turned from singing about the redemption of Israel to singing over his son, John. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. That wasn't a straightforward thing for Zechariah to declare. Consider who he was. He and his wife were descendants of Aaron. They were part of the priesthood. They were the religious establishment. Zechariah had spent his life upholding the law, publicly and personally, preserving the rituals and the religious traditions. By right, by birthright, this son he had waited for for so long would, should be a priest after him, should continue the priestly line. But by obeying the divine instruction to name his son John, and not after himself, Zechariah was declaring that the spirit has priority over the ways and traditions of men. And so he sang that this child would not be a priest, but a prophet. His child would live in the desert and not in the temple. His child would live by the spirit and not by the pattern set by his father. Left to our own devices, our instincts tell us to stay with what we know, with our excellent traditions, with the way things have always been done. But by the Spirit, Zechariah discerned that God was at work, and by the Spirit, he embraced and affirmed the way God was bringing about change, even though it went against everything he had known. It's not good character or spiritual caliber, but the spirit that enables us to change the culture around us. 
Zechariah recognized that his son was the Messiah's forerunner, the preparer of the way that Isaiah and Malachi had spoken of, and he affirmed these prophecies over his son. Zechariah saw that his son would usher in a change in the culture, that he would cultivate the conditions into which the Messiah would come. Verse 76, you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And that was what John the Baptist went on to do. Verse 80 tells us that the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Dressed in his coat of camel hair, the Gospels tell us that John came out of the desert preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John came out of the desert and changed the culture, disrupting the religious norms of temple worship, ritual observance, and the keeping of the law with new practices, preaching in the open country, baptizing people in the River Jordan. John was the one who dared, like no other religious leader before him, to confront Herod, even at the cost of his own life. Left to our own devices, we assume that a change in culture involves a sea change, a huge generational shift. But by the Spirit, John the Baptist changed the culture by being a voice, one voice calling in the desert, one voice daring to preach the necessity of repentance and forgiveness of sins, one voice speaking the truth to power, one voice preparing the way for the Lord to come. And the good news for us is that we don't live in the time of Zechariah. We don't live in the time of John. We don't even live in the time of Jesus. We are the people living in the time of the Spirit, that period of history before Jesus comes again. The Spirit that was once given selectively to the few, to Mary, to Elizabeth, to Zechariah, to John, is now given to anyone who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus. After me, John said, will come one more powerful than I. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We are the people who have been baptized by that Spirit, the Spirit who made the universe out of nothing, the Spirit who made two miracle babies, one in a virgin, one in a woman, past childbearing age. The same creative, powerful Spirit is in us because Jesus promised he would send him to be with us until the very end of the age, until Jesus himself comes back. It's the Spirit who makes the difference to our waiting, to our preparing for our Lord's return. However this Advent season has gone, we can recognize that because of the Spirit, Advent is not a season, but an attitude of the heart. Because of the Spirit, our waiting is not a dull, static thing, Rather, our waiting is an action, a constant watching to discern what God is doing beyond what we can see, a confidence that he is doing something, even though on the surface it appears that nothing ever changes. Our waiting is a constant openness 
to put down our own instincts and habits and traditions, however good and excellent they are, and instead to welcome and embrace the way God wants to change things. And what does that mean for us, St. Michael's Chester Square, as we prepare to welcome a new vicar, God willing, in 2020, with all our excellent traditions, with the godly heritage, the goodly heritage we have inherited? What does it mean for us as a people to be open to the change God wants to do amongst us in the new year? And our waiting is a constant daring to speak the transforming spirit of God into our culture, whether that's speaking hope to tired and weary friends in a troubled city on the other side of the world, or to the loved ones, the friends and family we will see this Christmas. It may seem a small thing, but a spirit-led word or gesture to someone is changing the culture. It's your one voice cultivating the conditions into which Jesus can come into that life. We are the privileged people who, as we celebrate our Lord's first coming and wait for his second, can wait actively, joyfully, and hopefully, not because of our good character or spiritual caliber, but because we have, we possess in us, the powerful, dynamic, life-giving spirit of God. It may be that you heard none of that. It may be that a sermon is the last thing you need three days before Christmas when you have things to do, things to sort out. It may be that you go into Christmas preoccupied with something difficult, some looming fear or anxiety, a situation in the family. Perhaps you've been ill or you know someone close to you who is ill. Perhaps you are grieving a loss. If you hear nothing else, take away this one verse. Take away the declaration that Zacharias sang over over John. Zacharias sang this over John. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. Because that verse tells us that God doesn't distinguish between the public things and the private personal things. He doesn't distinguish between the big and the small, the macro and the micro. Sometimes when we consider the infinite scale of God's salvation plan, we may feel that somehow we have to subsume the longings of our own heart into that bigger picture. Sometimes we may feel that it's a bit weak or silly to bring our private hopes to the Lord, or that it's not worth his while to be interested or troubled in the small things of my life as he goes about working out a good and just and right outcome for all of history and all of time. But Zechariah's song tells us that God doesn't make that distinction. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. The child, John, may have been an answer to the hopes of a nation, but he was also the answer to the private prayer of Zechariah's heart. That child may have been the prophet of the Most High, but he was also Zechariah's child, my child, the one for whom he had waited for so long. Though for now we might catch only a glimpse of how he's doing it, 
God is answering the cries of the whole of creation and the hidden longings of our heart without devaluing or compromising either. That is what the Song of Zechariah tells us. And that is the promise of Christmas, when the hopes and fears of all the years were met in that child, born to that woman, in that place, and in that time. I pray for us all a joyful, hopeful Christmas. Above all, I pray for us a Christmas that is filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.